0: You're listening to Unlocking Our Sound Heritage and Holiday Voices, brought to you by Manx National Heritage, the charity responsible for the Isle of Man's natural and cultural heritage. The sound recordings you'll hear today and throughout this series on Manx Radio are part of a unique collection of around 600 sound recordings, digitised from the Manx National Heritage Sound Archive, and available now online for the first time the team at Manx National Heritage hope you enjoy eavesdropping on the voice clips we've chosen from the nation's sound archive, all of which can be listened to in full at imuseum.im.
1: As we all know, travelling to and from the island can sometimes be a challenge due to the weather. Despite this, nearly 100 years ago, over 600,000 visitors arrived in Douglas for the holiday season. One of those visitors was Kathleen Gore, who was born in 1914. In this clip, recorded in the late 1990s by John Beckerson, she describes one of her first ever journeys across the Irish Sea.
2: What was it like coming over? Do you remember leaving home and the boat trip? Yes, I remember the boat trip that? very well because
1: we
3: um, you had to get on uh, early. You were on a long time before it sailed and it took nearly four hours, the journey, and it was quite a rough one. And I think I hung over and looked at the sea, you know, and until it made me really sick, and I was horribly ill. And then, um, uh, until we got on shore, I felt really green. <laughs> Horrible thought. Made me frightened for every future journey, but that was the only time I ever was seasick. And I think it was watching the waves...
1: Other people who vividly remember their stormy crossing over to the island are Mr. and Mrs. Evans, who came to the Isle of Man for their honeymoon in the nineteen seventies. Recorded in nineteen ninety nine, in this snippet, Mr. Evans recalls being tied onto the railings of the ship.
4: I remember it being a Force nine coming over. The only, the only boat that left Liverpool that day was the Lady of Man, and so we were on it. <laughs> yeah, it was...
5: You were outside with Karen you met. Yeah,
4: no, not being a very good sailor. Uh, all the men in brackets were all in the bar. <laughs> and I was tied to the uh, to the handrail of the ship.
5: <laughs> and I was looking after the uh, little ones because they were being sick. Um, and my sister-in-law and my niece, they were both ill as well, so they couldn't look after the children, so it was down to me. <laughs> Pretty good sailor, I am.
6: (laughs) It must have been quite a crossing.
5: It was
1: wasn't it? Take a listen once more to Kathleen as she describes when cars were first introduced onto the ferries.
3: In fact, there were practically no cars. I think that the first year that we took our car, which would be when, oh, years later, there were very few cars on the island, very few, only two or three on the boat. But then in time, of course, it was full, of and and the Manx people themselves started getting cars, didn't they? You saw a lot of M's yeah. about, yes.
6: So you took the car on the boat, what was that like? You mentioned a, a crane, can you tell me about well,
3: that? Well, yes, it was a crane with a rope that they put round, the, like pad, and roped under the four wheels. And hoisted it up and swung it over. (laughs) And you just (laughs) prayed that it survived safely.
2: Was your father slightly worried? I don't think
3: he was. I think he was unflappable, really, in those ways.
7: Mm. In this next recording, taken in 1998, Hilary Gard remembers his first impressions of Douglas when he visited as a young man.
8: All my life I've been very active and I very, very rarely stayed in hotels because I really wasn't fit to stop in a hotel. I used to go camping and I had a garage in Stourbridge and uh, I came up for two days holiday and I I came up in the car and I was going to Dublin for two days and they wouldn't take me on the Dublin boat apparently because I hadn't camped on the landing stage for two days and two nights so I went up to the little kiosk, the Isleman Steam Packet, and uh, I got on the Isleman Steam Packet boat, and we disappeared out of the bar, and the Dublin boat was still there, so they could have taken me on. And I was tootling along the promenade, a beautiful summer's day, and it, the uh, the shore was like Blackpool, thousands of people on it, and uh, <coughs> blue sky. And the sea was like glass. And all the boarding houses on the promenade in those days, I believe by law, were compelled to be the same colour, which was white. And it looked like the Bay of Naples. It was marvellous. And I thought to myself, what on earth? What what are these people that are allowed to live here in this paradise?
7: Some people dream of having a holiday romance. Luckily for Mr Gard, his holiday romance turned into marriage. Listen to this lovely story of how he met his wife when he was a guest at the Grasmere Hotel on Douglas Promenade.
8: I remember putting out my swimming costume on the sill when the window was open. But first of all, I tested the windowsill to see if there was any dirt on it before I put my my wet swimming costume on it. And it was clean. I thought, that's amazing. So I put my hand under the window and that was clean. So I put my hand on the top of the wardrobe and that was clean. There was no fluff under the bed. And I put my hand as the final test over the top of the door when it was opened. And it came as clean as when I first started. And then I found out that this girl did all the bedrooms in the house, 27. And uh, she helped out her, her mother as well. I hadn't seen her. And I thought, well, I'm going, going to stop in and see this girl. She must be a wonder. And I was on the top floor, which is room 27. And there was a knock on the door, of course there was no locks on the doors in those days, and I was standing about a couple of feet inside the door and uh, the door was just knocked and opened. Uh, not uh, anybody there, because everybody was out except me. And it was, uh, it was the girl, you see, and oh my God, she was gorgeous. And I thought to myself, that's a girl I'm going to marry.
7: Some holiday romances, however, don't quite last as long, This entertaining tale, told to us by Mr. and Mrs. Burney in 1999, is about an encounter in the Metropole Hotel between a chambermaid and a French guest.
4: I remember when we were at the Metropole having um, a chambermaid, who shall be nameless, and we had a French ship coming in. And there were a lot of French sailors on it. I do remember I was going out checking all the doors and locking up. and we had
6: still well.
4: stairways down leading down to the cellar. So I'm going checking the doors to make sure they're locked, and I hear the young lady and the French sailor evidently doing things that you did in the sixties. And <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Lock the door. And then I hear somebody going up the stairs and I hear her shouting in a strong accent,
2: Oh but away. what what's your name?
4: 70 (laughs) Yes, Yes, 70 Uh
5: Unfortunately, the holiday season wasn't all fun and games for everyone. In this interview, recorded in 1998, Mr and Mrs Hope talk about the expectations of a child growing up in a boarding house and even having to sleep in the bath.
9: Well, I hated it, to be honest. You'd come home and you'd end up sleeping in an armchair or I've slept in the bath or I've slept on a landing with a screen. And, um, of course, when you came home from school, you had to help with the dishes or, I mean, and TT fortnights, of course, in those days, there was no um, pub meals to be got. There was nowhere on the course. Once you were on the course, and most of them were taken up on coaches, they didn't have motorbikes then, The, um, the spectators went up on coaches, they were stuck on the course, so they all took packed lunches which meant that the night before every race, the whole family had a production line going in the kitchen, one buttering, one slapping the ham and cheese on, and one putting them in a bag, and another one putting an apple and a biscuit in. (coughs) So it was a whole family effort, really.
5: Interestingly, Megan Creer had a very similar experience. Interviewed in 1999, she chatted about the rather peculiar sleeping arrangements of her family, during the height of the season.
6: But you get a bit greedy, you know, in that business. And uh, uh, I'd got a lovely studio couch in our living room and that was uh, for my daughter and I. The first year we went in, we had a cellar and my husband and the boys, two boys, slept in the cellar. And every morning it was a ritual of when they got up, all their bedding was brought up to the living room. I was awful afraid of dampness, you know. But that was two, three years they did that, you know. And then the boys got married. So that was only my husband then. So I bought a nice studio couch in the the little lounge we had, you know, so that he could go on that then, you see. But uh, um, before that, Uh, he would come after the boys got married and I would say to him you can go up to such and such a room tonight, you know the the bed's empty, you know and then he would come in for his tea and I would say I'm sorry but that room's gone (laughs) somebody's come to the door (laughs) he took it all in good part because he knew we were having to do it to get your mortgage together, you know it was very hard going I mean you you uh, you had to have your money by you, you know, pay all your, uh, for your food, everything in that line.
0: When the Second World War broke out, many boarding houses across the island were turned into internment camps. Rosalie Black, who was born in 1928, lived in the Alexandria Hotel from the 1920s to the 1980s. In this clip, she remembers the impact that the war had on her family business
2: born in 1928, so you'd remember the war breaking out as a young woman? Yes, and vaguely. Well, I was only I was 10 or 11, actually. Can you remember what the family said and what they felt as you had to clear out the hotel that day? Um, no, I can't remember, but I've been told that literally the hotel just cleared. You know, all the visitors, all the staff, they just literally went. And uh, my brother and his friends I think a few, a couple of weeks before I hadn't joined the Territorial Army over here. So the first real thing that happened was all the Manx boys went away um, to the army. And then we stayed. I can't remember how long we stayed at the Alexandra, but uh, we, not long, not long at all. And then we went up to the Douglas Bay Hotel to live, which was empty, of course, again, completely empty. And um, I always remember uh, the, uh, the night of Dunkirk. Suddenly... Uh, we were were inundated with about 300 men who wanted feeding. They brought them to the Isle of Man. And uh, I think my father was out in the golf course anyway, they sent for him. And my mother managed it, she she fed the 300. And then after that, the army was billeted up there. I think there must have been the guards who were looking after the internment camps. And we, we left. We went down to live at a little place at Switzerland.
0: Terry Kringle, born in 1931, also remembers many boarding houses being turned into internment camps. In this entertaining story, he tells us about the antics of one escaped internee.
4: During the war, most of the boarding houses were um, taken over by the government, that's the UK government, and used uh, for detaining aliens. Uh, Our boarding houses were perhaps luckier, because the people whose houses were taken over for aeons had to move out virtually overnight and leave everything as it was, go and find somewhere else to live and find another way of making a living, I'm sorry we can't help you. Uh, but my parents didn't get, didn't have to go out because our boarding houses were used as billets for the troops that were guarding the camps. Uh, but eventually my father, um, he he was sailing with the steam packet company and then he volunteered for the RAF and he went abroad so towards the latter end of the war uh, my mother and I and my brother were living alone in the house and um, the troops had moved out so we had an empty boarding house and around about 46, 45 uh, with the war years, with the war being won you could tell that the number of people coming to the island picked up one night, and I think this must have been either 43 or 44, a lady came and asked to be put up. And she said that her husband was an Italian who was one of the Italian internees in the camp at the Metropole. So my mother took her in, was very glad to, uh, to have her, and she went to visit her husband. And I think she stayed. she was going to stay for a couple of days and then visit him. And the second night she was there, my mother and I were sitting in our front room in the sort of semi-basement, which was the living quarters, and we had a neighbour in, Mrs. Garn from next door, but one. And we were all sitting there, I think we were probably listening to the poem service on the wireless. And our front door opened outside the room, and somebody walked in up the corridor outside the living room, and then up the stairs, up towards the bedrooms. Well, my mother obviously guessed who it was, and she was right. It was the Italian prisoner. He'd escaped. And obviously his wife had told him where the boarding house was and where her bedroom was, and so he'd gone up to see her, and obviously to make up for a good deal of lost time while he'd been in uh, incarceration. Well, the only thing my mother could do was to, to ring up the police, and she did so. And the police and the army came, and they took this poor fellow... Away, but I would like to think that before they did, they sat down and thought, well, we'll give him five or ten minutes before we go. I would like, but at the time, of course, I didn't know what he was doing <laughs> because I was, I suppose, 12 or 13.
0: Rationing also had a big impact on the way hotels and boarding houses could operate. One person who remembers all about the restrictions of rationing is Muriel Cottier, interviewed in 1999.
10: When we first started in 1946, rationing was still on. Um, we, couldn't, we couldn't give a dinner every day because you didn't have enough rations. So it used to be sort of Sunday, Tuesday and Thursday we did dinner full board and the other days we did two bed and breakfast. So,
0: so even on the Isle of Man you couldn't get enough food?
10: Well, well not really, I mean you, you couldn't not to sort of serve meat every day, because of course everything was still rationed. I can't remember how long it was rationed for, actually.
4: It was rationed for was quite a, few, a number of years, a few years really, yes. Because I
10: remember we used to have to have their ration books, of course. Um, the tea coupons were like a little square, which was divided into four. And I know if we, we could sort of, uh, somebody would say, well, look, you can have an extra tea from us, we don't need it, you can have it. And that used to mean that by that we could get another meat
1: ration.
10: <laughs> All those sort of things, which you don't even think about now. You think are quite funny, you know. But they weren't then, they were really, you were glad to get it. Because you couldn't have bacon or every day, you know, you couldn't serve bacon for breakfast every morning. Oh,
8: food was very and butter, short Butter after was rationed,
10: really. so we used to have to sort of, um, we used to put their own rations of butter on the tables for them and um, say that's your butter ration for for the week you know when that's gone you have to have marge which of course we had to serve as well and, you know but um we had to do that because otherwise I mean, we never have had enough really sugar we, we, we always seemed to have enough sugar i don't know why but that was all that never really worried us very much but See. they used to come around every so often um, and inspe- inspect, you know, and count with your coupons and all that sort of thing. We'd we to have to send them in every month, of course, as well. But they could come at any time and inspect to make sure that you didn't have, you we weren't being naughty.
1: After the war, it wasn't long before the Isle of Man was once more filled with tourists. Letty Edgar, speaking in 1999, tells an amusing story of her favourite types of guests.
6: When I had the the old age pensioners. They had some life in them. I'm not kidding you, they... In, when I was in Box Road, um, they said, "No, come on, come with us, we're going to Russian Abbey, because there was the dance there. And I'd be really tired. As a matter of fact, my sister was home from Canada at this time. And I remember going on the coach with them, and they were flying around dancing, and I'm sitting and saying, come on and dance. And I was exhausted. But oh, they, I always found that After they had gone, everything seemed to go flat until the people come and get settled in, Yeah, But they were the highlight, definitely.
1: Another person who remembered what the Isle of Man was like after the war was Dursley Scott. Take a listen to this next clip where he details the sheer amount of visitors that came to the island post-1945.
8: And in those days, my grandfather told my father, who told me, that if we had 300,000 visitors to 400,000, we would survive. And this, don't forget, is only May to September time, if not later. If we had four to five hundred, we were doing well, and 600,000, we were all in clover. And bearing in mind, we had a very short season. One often used to hear people say, what a wonderful way to make a lot of money very quickly. Having had a wife whose people were in boarding houses, I mean, it is true that they did well, but they worked incredibly hard.
1: On the whole, most hotel guests are relatively well-behaved. There are always some, however, who get up to no good. Hearing again from Muriel, she tells us an entertaining anecdote of some young boys who came to stay at her establishment.
10: I remember another four, and they were little boys, they were like little jockeys, they were so tiny, and they were, they were only about 16, I think, if they were that. Six, they must have been 16, sure. Anyway, they were up in the room at the very, very top of the house, and... Um, one or two of the visitors said, "You know those young fellows at the top of the house." And I said, "Yes, they're quite nice, aren't they? They're good, aren't they?" And they were saying, are they." There was one of them in the toilet last night, and he was being sick, and I'm sure he was drunk. And I said, "He couldn't have been because I they said they're only 16 would isn't they?" <laughs> anyway, um, somebody said, and another thing, they go down to the to the um, water's edge every morning and have a. They seem to have a paddle. You see, so. I thought, what on earth is this? So one morning, somebody went down, followed them, and <laughs> they were bringing bottles of beer in, and they were pushing them down there, just pulling their socks over, mm-hmm. so I wouldn't see them, and going down and throwing them on the beach. That was it. And when we went in, at the end of, the, of the, their week to clean their bedroom, we opened the drawers, took the paper, lining paper out, went like that, and we had a shower of, tops. they'd hidden those under the papers, you know, in the drawers. And they must have been bringing the, the uh, bottles home from somewhere and drinking it. And they were uh, sort of drunk on the stairs and things. So, and they looked like four dear little boys. They did oh, really, yes. little yeah. innocents, you know. That was one time when I was taken in.
7: As we've heard throughout this episode, Being a boarding house and hotel owner was not an easy task. There was all of the housework that had to be done, the cooking, and you also had to put up with one or two mischievous guests. According to Burt Quirk in this final snippet, however, one thing that made it all worthwhile was seeing the island come alive. As he perfectly summed up, it was a good life.
4: And
2: what was the atmosphere like on the promenade uh, in Douglas in the season? Can you remember what that was like? Magic,
8: Magic when I was a kid, yeah. Um... <laughs> then I have recollections of, of watching the prisoners of Wars go back to the very early days. But then that, that was shortly before we went to Liverpool when I, you know, had a couple of three years of school. But when we come back of course it was it was mad, it was in May and you know, the place was even Everybody wanted to come on holiday, I think. And the place was just even It was it was that way up till sixties, no, early sixties. Before people found someone else to go. I mean every hotel was Chuck, I to come. a good life
5: <laughs> thanks for listening to holiday voices join us again next week for voices from the arts from unlocking our sound heritage or in the meantime listen again on the podcast available on the Manx radio website you can visit imuseum.IM and click on Unlocking Our Sound Heritage to listen to these and many more sound recordings from the Manx National Heritage Sound Archive. To find out more about the charity Manx National Heritage and how you can support us, visit our website manxnationalheritage.im or join us on Facebook.